works. All right, John 4, let's stand for the reading of God's Word. We're going to read from verse 1 down through verse number 8 together. The Bible says, When therefore the Lord knew how the Pharisees had heard that Jesus made and baptized more disciples than John, though Jesus himself baptized not, but his disciples, he left Judea and departed again into Galilee. And he must needs go through Samaria. Then cometh he to a city of Samaria, which is called Sychar, near to the parcel of ground that Jacob gave to his son Joseph. Now, Jacob's well was there. Jesus, therefore, being wearied with his journey, sat thus on the well, and it was about the sixth hour. Then cometh the woman of Samaria to draw water. Jesus saith unto her, Give me to drink, for his disciples were gone away unto the city to buy meat. So Jesus is leaving Judea, leaving Jerusalem. He's heading back to Capernaum, where he would be headquartered out of. And he makes a stop in Sychar, Samaria. He has a planned divine appointment where he's going to engage a woman who was the outcast of a people who were outcast. And he's going to share with her the love of salvation and reveal himself as the Savior to her, and he's going to save her soul. We're looking at the Gospel of John, verse by verse. We're looking at a set of sub-series right here called Engage. Tonight, we're going to, last week we saw how Jesus engaged the scholar. Tonight, in chapter 4, we'll see how Jesus engaged the sinner. The sinner, engaging the sinner, the title of the sermon. Let's pray tonight. Lord, I'm so glad that you engaged this sinner right here behind this pulpit Back in 1988, when you uh, allowed my sin to be confronted by preaching on a Sunday evening, and Lord, my soul was saved. It was just about this time, that year, where I got saved. Lord, thank you that um, my sin was uh, not too great for you to defeat. But Lord, you defeated my sin and saved my soul. That testimony can be said for, if not everyone, most everyone here. But Lord, we pray tonight if there's someone that, that is amongst us who's not yet given their heart to Jesus, whether that be via live stream or in person, that tonight would be the night they turn to you for salvation. Help us to be quick to engage those around us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. God has given each of us that are alive in Christ a commission to replicate our faith into the hearts and lives of everyone. Everyone. Um, we are to share our faith with everyone. Can I say some people are more interested in hearing about your faith than others. Some people just don't want to hear it. Back in 2013, I was hired at Max Finkelstein Incorporated out of South Windsor, Connecticut, uh, Max Finkelstein is a company that delivers all kinds of tires all over the area from the suburbs of Boston all the way out to Rhode Island, southern Connecticut. That was that warehouse's territory. And throughout my, my time there, I went all over the place delivering tires. I made it my duty when I was in the warehouse to try to be a witness to each person that I worked with. I, uh, they found out pretty quick that my previous job had been an assistant pastor, and so here I am wearing a shirt with my name on it, making just a little bit over minimum wage, uh, working a warehouse job, and everyone in that building just called me pastor. They called me pastor, and uh, I wasn't their pastor, but I uh, quickly did become many of their 
pastors. And I found that right away there were people like a Will who um, was going through a hardship in his marriage who uh, needed the love of Jesus shared. And I was able to stand with Will outside during a lunch break and lead him to Christ. Will, Will stayed in contact with me for a good four or five years. In fact, after I became the pastor here in 2016, I made two or three trips up to northern Connecticut to visit with him and pray with him and uh, counsel him through some marriage troubles. And uh, I had people like Will who were open to the gospel. I had another guy who worked there, and I tried to engage him in the gospel. His name was Demetrius, and he just didn't want to hear it. He, he cut me out real quick and shut me down and... Uh, one day there was a snowstorm outside, and uh, I um, uh, we were locked in the building. It was too snowy for us to go out and deliver tires, so they had a sweeping corner and just whatever it was to fill time. And he and I got stuck in a trailer doing some work together. And uh, the topic of movies came up, and I had just watched a movie uh, on Netflix that was a Christian movie that was very thought provoking and gave the gospel in it. And I don't even remember the name of the movie now, but. I said to him, I said, I, I said, do you have Netflix? He said, I do. I said, I got a movie for you. And I just gave him the name. He said, what's it about? I said, I'm not going to tell you. You got to come and watch it. And uh, he came to work the next day, and I had, uh, I had a This Is Your Life chick track that someone had given me in my car. I brought that in with me, and he said, um, that movie really got my attention. I said, I have something for you to read. I gave him the This Is Your Life. How many of you know what chick track I'm talking about? I gave him that chick track. and He came back to me the next day and he said, I prayed the prayer at the end of that track. I couldn't witness to him directly, but I got a movie to witness to him. And I got a chick track to witness to him. And the last I knew, Demetrius is attending a Baptist church up there in Southern Mass. And uh, listen, uh, you, you, you have to engage people. You have to engage people. I had a... Um, I had a, uh, a supervisor named Earl, and Earl um, uh, was interested in going to seminary. But it, Earl went to an Episcopal church, and, and I really questioned whether or not Earl was saved. And so one Saturday morning, I met Earl at a diner, and uh, he and I sat there. and I, I, I went through the gospel with Earl, and sitting over breakfast outside of work clothes and work times, and he being my supervisor, I led Earl to receive Christ as his Savior. Some uh, accepted. I had one guy that worked there. Man, he, every other word was just profanity, taking God's name in vain. It was blasphemy. It was one word after the other. He, he claimed to be an atheist. He would blare his music uh, at, at, just at, at top volume in his truck and uh, come in and just uh, was being irreverent, my direction on purpose. And one day we were loading his truck together to get him out the door. He had the Boston route and uh, didn't get back till late at night and worked long hours. A single man, long hair, scruffy looking guy. And, uh, he began to uh, ask me questions trying to uh, uh, get me. Some of those gotcha questions. Every gotcha question he threw at me, he wasn't very educated. I, I had a good comeback for him. And finally he looked at me and he said, well, I have thought that I was an atheist my whole life, but man, you really got me thinking. You really got me thinking. I never did get Earl, or I never did get that gentleman, excuse me, to give his heart to Christ. Some were wide open like a will. Others, like a Demetrius, took time. Others kept me at arm's length and would not hear the gospel much at all. And when we engage, it is our duty to engage with everyone. Some will consider and then reject. 
Uh, some will consider and receive. Some may even uh, hear and just outright refuse and even become angry or even violent toward your witness. Now, if you're taking notes this evening, let me encourage you to write two short sentences down by way of introduction here, okay? Here's the first sentence. You are not responsible for the response. You are not responsible for the response. You're not. You are not responsible for the response. You give the gospel to everyone and don't you worry about the response. Now, you need to work hard to persuade and you need to work hard to meet people where they are and you need to work hard to be relatable. But at the end of the day, you are not responsible for the response. This is going to sound redundant. I worded it this way on purpose. Here here we go. Here's the second sentence. You are, however, responsible for your responsibility. You are, however, responsible for your responsibility. Don't be a one-talent Christian. What I mean is that talent that just takes what you're given and buried in the sand. Don't do that. Don't get to heaven and have God look at you and say, what did you do with the burden of the gospel that I gave you to give to others? You say, well... Well, I I didn't do anything. That's a problem. You are responsible for your responsibility. Throughout the pages of John's Gospel, we find Jesus engaging many different types of people. Last week, we looked at John 3, and we saw there that Jesus engaged the scholar. This week, John 4, we'll see that Jesus engages the sinner. Next week, we'll look at John 5 on Easter Sunday evening and see how he engaged the sick man. In John 6, he engages skeptics. In John 7, he engages the pharisaical scorners. Jesus gave out truth everywhere he went. Some people were offended by it, while others openly welcomed it. But his message remained the same. Believe and receive. Believe and receive. Um, uh, This evening, we're going to turn our attention to this woman that Jesus met at Sychar's well. She was filled with sin and she was living an iniquitous, fornicating lifestyle. Of all the people that accepted the message of Christ, she was as open and receptive as any of them were. It wasn't the religious elite that were open to the gospel. It was a woman who was living in fornication. She was the one who was ready to receive. Don't you look at someone and think, oh, well, they're too wicked for salvation. Listen, they're right in the wheelhouse of salvation. We, uh, we have a tendency as, as Christians, and I speak broadly here, even beyond our church, we have a tendency as Christians to be judgmental toward people who live a very debaucherous and sinful lifestyle and think, ah, uh, they're, they're, uh, they're beyond the pale. They can't. Listen, that's exactly who God enjoys saving the most. They're the ones that Jesus seeks out the quickest. The ones whose lives are, 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 are almost like a, a, just straight rebellion toward God, defiant toward God. He grabs those and He saves them because they're so broken and miserable in their sin. They've got this exterior of being just broken, and, or rather being defiant, but inwardly they're miserable and they're looking for Jesus. I believe that the more beat up someone is by their sinful choices, the more readily receptive they are of the truth of the gospel. I propose that if you and I will look at the world through the eyes of our Savior, we'll see many people 
broken by sin and looking for a Savior. I have shared this story many times in my soul winning class. But I'm going to share it here in the church service. When I was in Bible college my freshman year, I was an 18-year-old kid and just full of a lot of zeal but not a whole lot of knowledge. And I remember uh, I worked a bus route in West Chicago in a, a, a little suburb called Summit. I believe Miss Marcia's aunt lived right down the road from Summit there. But um, uh, Summit it, uh, was a town filled with Middle Eastern, uh, I don't know if they were refugees or just folks from the Middle East that had settled in there. And, and uh, I was given an area to work all by my lonesome. All By, my, by the way, um, let me just encourage you, don't be someone who goes out soul winning all by yourself. You're going to get discouraged real quick. For the whole school year, from 11 in the morning until about 8 o'clock at night, I was by myself working in an area where I got one person to come to church over nine months. Very discouraging. Very discouraging. But I remember um, God had to work on my heart with this idea of broken sinners are the most ready. There was a homeless man who uh, slept under a bridge. And I mean, he was pitiful looking. Um, I'd see him stumbling around in a stupor a lot of Saturday mornings. And the Spirit of God was working on me to go witness to him. And I remember thinking to myself, nah, I'm not going to talk to him. Uh, nah, nah. Almost in he's below me attitude. And uh, after several weeks of just, just refusing to do it, Spirit of God working on me, Refusing to do it, I, I was sitting in a college class and, and just being worked over by the Lord. You, you need to witness to this guy. You need to witness to this guy. And so the following Saturday, I, I yielded my heart and he was asleep under the bridge. You know those carts that oftentimes they push, the, 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 uh, the metal carts, and they've got, uh, they keep their belongings in there, four wheels, and they, they push it around. He had one of those and and I went over, and I, I had my distance, and I, I said, Hey, sir! And, and he kind of woke up and, and sat up and, and grabbed his head. and I mean, just, just a weather-beaten face and, and gray hair coming down and, and real matted and, and oily and, and just dirt and, and smog. and Just what you would think. He was the stereotypical-looking homeless man sleeping under a bridge. And, and uh, he gave me his name, and I, I told him who I was. I said, uh, can, I, can I speak with you for a little bit? He invited me, and I went over, and I sat there on that concrete bridge, on a slope, broken glass all over the place, and I spoke with him over for about 30 minutes. When I got up, he had prayed to receive Christ as a Savior. You know, I didn't even have to work that hard at it. He was ready. He was ready. He had made a lot of bad choices in his life. He was ready. You know, I never saw him again after that Saturday. Never saw him again. What if I had delayed just one more week? What if I had resisted just one more time? You know, I am going to see him again. I'm going to get to see him again in heaven. As he sat there and sincerely asked Christ to be his Savior. I've met a lot of people who have a lot of money and a lot of wealth. I've met a lot of people who are very smart. And can I tell you what money and intelligence are for someone who's lost? They're major obstacles to their salvation. It's a lot easier to lead someone to Christ who has no money and no intelligence or little intelligence. I believe the IQ of people in hell is going to be pretty high. 
Many people who've just rejected because of their own intelligence. Professing themselves to be wise, Romans 1 says, they became fools. We're going to see that Jesus today goes out of his way to engage with a sinner. Someone who had been rejected by her own culture. Someone who is living in deep sin. And Jesus is going to love her to salvation. Let's look at these four principal thoughts this evening. Let's jump into the notes. Number one, notice the path Christ chose. The path Christ chose. Look at John chapter 4. Look at verse number 3. He left Judea and departed again into Galilee. Look at verse 4. And he must needs go through Samaria. He must needs go through Samaria. Such a simple verse. But yet a verse that just says so much. Let's put the map up there if we can on the screen. Alright? So, it would be typical that you would follow a path and you would go around Samaria. Now, uh, I'm going to turn a look at the screen that you all have here. The traditional route would be that you would come up through uh, you leave Jerusalem, you come up through Ephraim, and you would take a right and go into, to the right there, that's Decapolis. You'd cross the Jordan River, uh, and uh, you'd go west into Decapolis. You'd travel up in, in uh, Gentile world, and then once you got past Samaria, you would merge into the province of Galilee and then make your trip on north. You were going to do everything you could to avoid Samaria. The arrow in green is the route that Christ took. And so the traditional route for Galileans going to Jerusalem was to walk around Samaria and not go into Samaria. And then when you were leaving uh, uh, Judea, going back up to Galilee, again, you would travel outside of the country and then you'd come back in. You'd do everything you could to avoid Samaria. I see Jesus and His disciples, they're walking down the road and they get to the well-traveled path where you bend into Decapolis and all of a sudden the disciples start going toward Decapolis and Jesus just starts walking towards Samaria. And they say to Him, Jesus, where are you going? What are you doing? And He says, I must needs go through Samaria. I must needs. But, but Jesus, do you know who's in Samaria? The Samaritans live. In Samaria. Why was that a problem? Well, the Samaritans were the result of the ten northern tribes being carried away into Assyrian captivity many uh, hundreds and hundreds of years prior. And the Samaritans were half-breed Jews and half-breed Assyrians. And you see, the Assyrians didn't want the Samaritans because they were half-Jewish and The Jews didn't want the Samaritans because they were half Assyrian. And so they were people who were not wanted by any other people group. They were technically part of Israel, but not wanted by their own countrymen. So um, oftentimes churchgoers are guilty of the same sin that the Jews committed. They'll only fellowship or talk to those who they deem socially acceptable. Hey, White Oak Baptist Church, I'm not saying this because I think it's a problem here, but I'm going to keep preaching on it so it doesn't become a problem. It does not matter how much money someone has, has, you're to love them just the same. Did you know something about bright lights? They attract strange bugs. Does White Oak Baptist Church have some strange bugs? 
All right? I, I don't think. If you don't know what I'm talking about, you are. <laughs> Do you know those people need you to love them too? Don't be rude to people. You can be direct with someone who's out of bounds. That's fine. How would Jesus treat those folks that are socially inept? You say, man, he or she does not know how to take a hint. Okay. All right. Love him anyway. He must needs to go through Samaria. Someone comes into church, they got alcohol in their breath. Love him anyway. Someone comes into church and it looks like they dipped their face in the tackle box where they walked in. Love them anyway. Someone comes in with their hair dyed pink or purple. Love them anyway. Don't, don't treat them any different. Someone comes in and they're not dressed with the dress culture of our church. Hey, love them anyway. We shouldn't ever have a woman visit our church and say, Oh, I, I, don't, I don't fit there because I don't dress like they do and, and, and I don't... They don't, they don't love me there. Uh, look, let's look past the outward appearance and let's love their heart. Let's love their heart. Now, I'm thankful I look around the room tonight, especially this morning, and the, the color diversity in our church. Praise God. Amen. Praise the Lord. I think that puts a smile on the face of heaven. But don't you ever, ever discriminate based on the base, based on color, based on someone's skin color. Hey, you know what? Someone's got a different skin color than you. That doesn't mean anything. You know what that means? Can I tell you the totality of what that means? All it means is they've got a different skin color than you. That's it. That's where it begins and ends. Amen? And uh, they just need you to love them. Love them for who they are. Um, they didn't want anything to do with Samaritans because the Samaritans were half-breeds. Jesus saw past that and He knew there were people there that needed Him. The path Christ chose. Number two, notice the person Christ encountered. Jesus has an appointment on His schedule. He knows that there's a certain someone going to make their way out of town to the well to get water. And uh, he's got to go through Samaria because he's going to meet this, this girl and he's going to tell her about salvation. Notice letter A, her surprise. Her surprise. Look with me at verse number 6. Now Jacob's well was there. Jesus, therefore, being wearied with his journey. There's the physicality of Christ, the humanity of Christ, sat thus on the well and... It was about the sixth hour. There cometh a woman of Samaria to draw water. Jesus saith unto her, Give me to drink. For his disciples were gone unto the city to find a McDonald's. And then saith the woman of Samaria unto him, How is it that thou... Okay, uh, that's not what it said. Um, city to buy meat. Then saith the woman of Samaria unto him, How is it that thou, being a Jew, askest drink of me, which am a woman of Samaria? For the Jews have no dealings with the Samaritans. Um, understand that while this would not be that odd, actually, can I tell you the American reading of this verse? Jesus was being sexist for telling a woman to get him water. <laughs> That's how we would read it through the scope of our politically correct 
uh, uh, weirdly perverse society. All right, but let's set aside our cultural perspective and let's see it from the cultural through the cultural lens of the day that Jesus lived. Understand that men just did not casually talk to women that they were not related to and did not know. That just didn't happen. A man didn't just stop and have a casual conversation with another woman. Much less a Jewish man with a Samaritan woman. Jews did not casually talk to Samaritans. Men did not casually talk with women. So, uh, double that down. Jewish men did not have casual conversation with Samaritan women. If a Jewish man were passing a Samaritan woman on the road, the Jewish man would just pretend that the Samaritan woman didn't exist, and the Samaritan woman would pretend that the Jewish man didn't exist. They would walk right by each other as though the other one was not even there. That was the culture. And here Jesus is sitting there by the well. Maybe there's a little bench there. Maybe sitting on the, on the grass over by the well. And here this woman comes to get water. She's all by herself. And Jesus says to her, Hey, can you get me some water? Water to drink. Can you get me some water to drink? Uh, what uh, whatever speech did happen from a, a, a Jewish man to a Samaritan woman would have been derogatory in nature. It would have been derogatory speech. It was a shock to her that someone of his class and clout would speak to her. Her surprise. She's surprised. He's saying to her, he's saying, uh, 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 can you get me some water? And she's amazed that he would even engage with her at all. Um, I, I see that in our world today, uh, people, let's see, I think I've got them in my pocket. People have these things right here in their ears everywhere they go. You know what that is? That's an AirPod right there, okay? And the typical person looks like this. All right? And you talk to them, and it's like you're inconveniencing them, right? Should I preach the rest of the sermon wearing these? I'm not going to do that. Right. Okay, I'll put those away. And people are surprised today when you engage with them. You know? I, I remember when we lived in Beacon Falls, I had a, a neighbor named Ian. and I was, talk, took, took, I was out doing some yard work one day. He was out doing yard work, and we started talking. He had a little boy, and uh, pretty similar in age to my kids at the time, or at, at, my kids, and um, uh, at the time we were homeschooling our kids, and he said to me, he said, aren't you worried that they're going to be socially awkward? And I looked at him and I said, man, I'm not worried about that at all. I said, number one, my kids have church, all right? And second of all, um, have you seen the way kids are with technology today? I said, most kids are socially awkward, all right? You go to a restaurant, they got their head buried in a screen, and uh, they go home and they've got their eyes buried in a screen. I said, I'm not, I'm not real worried about that. People today are socially awkward because they've been, uh, uh, they, they've been distorted with all the technology of our time. And when you stop and you look at someone in the eye and you smile at them and you say, how are you doing? So, are, you, are you talking to, to me? Right? I'm amazed. I go through the checkout line at the store. Did you know that you can go through most checkout lines and not even say one word? Right? Beep, 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 beep. They'll say, that'll be $24.95. You pull out your card and go, whoop. They hand you your seat, you take your stuff, and let you don't even open your mouth. In fact, I, I don't think most people do open their mouths when they go through the checkout line. And if that's not bad enough, now you can just check yourself out and avoid everybody. 
Today, when you take the time to talk with people, there is an element of surprise. Let her be notice her sin. Her sin. Look at John 4, look at verse 6. Now Jacob's well was there. Jesus, therefore, being worried, uh, wearied with his journey, sat thus on the well. And it was about the sixth hour. So that would have been about 12 noon. All right. So why was this woman there at high noon under the heat of the sun? Now, um, this is somewhat speculation, but I think other verses give us great reason to believe this speculation. Speculation would say that uh, she went at this time because she would not have to put up with the ridicule or the mockery of the other women of Samaria. After some time of conversing, Christ tells her that he already knows about her sinful past and her sinful lifestyle. Look at verse 16. Jesus saith unto her, Go, call thy husband, and come hither. The woman answered and said, I have no husband. Jesus saith unto her, Thou hast well said, I have no husband, for thou hast had five husbands, and he whom thou now hast is not thy husband. You're in a living together situation. In that saidest thou truly. Five men had married her and divorced her. Why? Why? Now look, all right? I've met people in a second or third marriage and and uh, sometimes, you know, you're young and you're learning as you go and you make bad decisions and you marry the wrong person or uh, you, um, uh, you uh, maybe you're the wrong person at a young age and you mature as you go, but good night. And by the way, if you've been here, been married and divorced five times, you, you fit this lady and you fit my grandmother. My, my grandmother, I think, was divorced something like seven or eight times. Okay, so um, I'm not picking on anyone. This is my own family lineage when I talk about this. And my, my, my grandmother had multiple live-in boyfriends on top of those seven or eight marriages and, uh, throughout her life. And, but at some point, the problem's not them, it's you. It's you. This is her sixth man. Jesus says, I know about your sin. In John chapter 6 and John chapter 7, we find people who are much more spiritually aware... Spiritually uh, inept or spiritually intact than this woman. But they were unable to find salvation. Why? Because they refused to see their sin for what it was. Now, here's a point I want to make before we move on here. Listen. You cannot get someone saved until you have thoroughly gotten them lost. You with me? Jesus is not just a life coach. Jesus is our Savior, and He saves us from the wretchedness of our sin that condemns us to an eternity in hell. And so if you have someone who labels themselves as morally good, or you have someone who thinks that because of going to church their whole life, they've got their act together, or you meet someone who thinks they're going to heaven based on the merit of their good works, you've got to spend a long time convincing them that they're sinners headed to hell because you can't get them saved until you have first fully, emotionally, and intellectually convinced them that they are lost. Now, you meet someone who has just lived a wretched lifestyle. Can I tell you that you don't have to spend a whole lot of time convincing them that they're lost. They know it. You know what I, I ask people, I said, you know where you're going when you die? You know what I love? I love when I have someone who says, 
I know I'm going straight to hell. I've had lots of people tell me that over the years. And I look at them and say, it's that bad, huh? And I say, you have no idea. I don't have to convince them of their sin. Because deep down they know. Jesus met this woman. And he knew and she knew that she was a sinner. I don't want us as a church to see people who are downtrodden and beaten down and living a, a lascivious, debaucherous, wicked lifestyle and think, ah, oh, well, I'm not going to... No, those are exactly the people we need to run to and preach the gospel. Let her see. We see her sincerity. Look at verse 19. The woman saith unto him, Sir, I perceive that thou art a prophet. Our fathers worshipped in the mountain, and ye say that in Jerusalem uh, is uh, the place where men ought to worship. Jesus saith unto her, Woman, believe me, the hour cometh when ye shall neither in this mountain nor yet at Jerusalem worship the Father. Ye worship, ye know not what. We know what we worship, for salvation is of the Jews. But the hour cometh and now is when the true worshiper shall worship the Father in spirit and in truth, for the Father seeketh such to worship Him. God is a spirit, and they that worship Him must worship Him in spirit and truth. The woman saith unto Him, I know that Messiah cometh, which is called Christ. When He is come, He will tell us all things. There are many people who are living in great sin. And they're clinging to some sort of faith. But sadly, their faith is oftentimes misplaced. Or their faith lacks true understanding of the truth. What is the greatest weapon that Satan has invented to take people to hell? Is it sexual deviance? No. No. Is it drugs? Is it drugs? Is that the greatest uh, tool Satan has invented? The abuse of drugs? No? No? The greatest tool in Satan's arsenal to take people to hell is religion. More people will go to hell because of false religion than anything else. People, look, deep down inside of us, Pastor Brown talked about it at 8.15. I wasn't in here at 10.30. I was up in Spanish ministry. At 8.15, Pastor Brown talked about how that all of us are geared toward having faith in something. And you know what? Uh, all these false religions are made around the idea that uh, you have a faith question that needs to be uh, answered and satisfied in something. All that does is scream to the fact that there is a, 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 a super uh, a, a deity uh, and, and there's something inside of us that desires that to be satisfied. And Satan says, I'm going to distract you from the real, authentic truth of salvation by giving you these false religions to believe in. And there are billions of people all over this world who are devout in their faith, but their faith is greatly misplaced. And while they have great intentions, the old song says that the road to hell is paved with good intentions. Someone can be sincere and be sincerely wrong. We have a whole sect of people that believe. It does not matter in what you believe, just that you believe. All roads lead to heaven. And I would say no. Jesus said, I am the way. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. This woman was sincere 
But she was sincerely wrong. Letter D, we see her surrender. Look at verse number 28. The woman then left her water pot and went her way into the city and said to the men, Come see a man which told me all things that ever I did. Is not this the Christ? Then they went out of the city and came unto him. Uh, When this woman perceived in her head and her heart that this man speaking to her at the well was the Messiah, the Christ, that was speaking to her, she repented of her sin and she surrendered to the Savior. I I can see her amazement. Uh, Isn't it odd that this Jewish man is all by himself here by the well and he's speaking to me and he's speaking to me about uh, my soul and he he can see down to my heart and he knows my sin, yet he's still being so loving and kind and caring and compassionate. And she puts down her water pot and she goes running into the city and she says to everyone, I surrender to the Messiah. I have found the Messiah. I believe. Number three, we see the parallels Christ used. The parallels Christ used. This is my favorite part of the sermon. All right, letter A, we see water that lives. Look at verse number seven. Then cometh the woman of Samaria to draw water. Jesus saith unto her, Give me to drink. For the disciples were gone away to the city to buy meat. Then saith the woman of Samaria unto him, How is it that thou, being a Jew, askest drink of me? Which am, which, am of, uh, which am a woman of Samaria. For the Jews have no dealings with the Samaritans. Jesus answered and said unto her, If thou knewest the gift of God, and who it is that saith to thee, Give me to drink, thou wouldest have asked of him, and he would have given thee living water. The woman saith unto him, Sir, thou hast nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. From whence then hast thou that living water? Art thou greater than our father Jacob? which gave us the well and drank thereof himself and his children and his cattle. Jesus answered and said unto her, Whosoever drinketh of this water shall thirst again. But whosoever drinketh of the water that I shall give him shall never thirst. But the water that I shall give him shall be in him a well of water springing up into everlasting life. Now we saw in John 3, how that Jesus used the metaphor of being born again, right? Of, uh, of the physical birth, that which is born of the water or the flesh is water. That which is born of the Spirit or the Holy Spirit is spirit. Marvel not that I say unto thee, ye must be born again. So Jesus uses the metaphor of, of birth and being born anew uh, to be saved. And here in John 4, He uses the metaphor of drinking water to be saved. He says to her, you came to get physical water to quench a physical thirst, but I want to give you a water that will satisfy a spiritual thirst. You see, deep down inside of your soul is a crying out to the Savior and a crying out uh, to be uh, complete and at one with Him. And if you'll drink of this water of salvation of which I offer you, you will never thirst again. Water that lives. I'm curious, how many of you here this evening, you got saved after the age of 16 years old? Raise your hand if you got saved after the age of 16 years old. Very good, you can put your hands down. Now, I was saved at 4 years old, and so I don't really understand what I'm about to say, but speaking to my wife about this who got saved at 19 or 20 years old, uh, she has confirmed this is totally true, and I've asked many other people about this, and so I'm going to ask you all that just raise your hand the same thing. Do you remember the day that you actually got saved? 
Do you remember that, 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 that thirst down in your soul? That desire uh, to have peace with God? Do you remember the day that you drank of the water of eternal life and that thirst was quenched? How many of you remember that? Yeah, how many of you remember that day? You asked Christ to save you and He quenched that thirst. And now you know that that thirst is satisfied and you're going to spend eternity in heaven with God. You see, it's water that lives. Letter B, we see it's meat that lasts. Meat that lasts. Look at John 4, look at verse 31. I love how, and by the way, it's just fascinating how people work. We're so focused on the earthly. We're so focused on what we can hold and see and touch. The disciples come and they're thinking about my stomach. I need food. I need a restaurant. Let's go find some food. And Jesus says, you guys go on. I'm going to wait right here by the well. And they leave and the water the woman comes and I'm thirsty. I want water. I need water. Real water. Jesus is not thinking about uh, uh, physical water. He's thinking about spiritual water. He's not thinking about physical meat. He's thinking about spiritual meat. And so while we're focused on the earthly, uh, the Lord Jesus is focused on the eternal. Look at verse 31. In the meanwhile, his disciples prayed to him saying, Master, eat, eat. But he said unto them, I have meat to eat that ye know not of. Therefore said the disciples one another, Hath any man brought him aught to eat? Totally over their heads. Jesus saith unto them, My meat is to do the will of him that sent me and to finish his work. Turn over to John chapter 6. For me, John chapter 6, meat that lasts. They're worried about their stomach. They're worried about physical food. He's worried about, uh, he's worried about uh, the spiritual food. He's worried about feeding others. and He's worried about consuming the work of Christ and doing the work of Christ. Look at John 6, look at verse 27. Uh, here Jesus says, Labor not for the meat which perisheth, but for the meat which endureth unto everlasting life, which the Son of Man shall give unto you, for him hath God the Father Seal. You all are worried about physical meat. I'm worried about spiritual meat. And you know what? We want meat that lasts. You're doing the work of the Lord. And um, uh, it sure is great to see someone accept salvation and believe and have their eternity changed from hell to heaven because we've been out preaching the gospel. That is metaphorical meat. And that is meat that is savory and enjoyable. Water that lives, meat that lasts. Let her see. We see uh, uh, harvest. That needs laborers. Harbor, harvest. That needs laborers. Look at John 4 back with me. And look at verse number 35. John 4, 35. Say not ye, there are yet four months, and then cometh harvest. Behold, I say unto you, lift up your eyes and look on the fields. For they are white already to harvest. And he that reapeth receiveth wages, and gathereth fruit unto life eternal that both he that soweth and he that reapeth may rejoice together. And herein is that true saying, One soweth and another reapeth. I sent you to reap, that whereon ye bestowed no labor, other men labored, and ye are entered into their labors. He says we need laborers. Now, some men are gonna, uh, some men and women are going to plant. Others are going to come along and water. Others are going to come along and reap the harvest. But all laborers are equal in their effort to bring about the salvation of someone's souls. And he says, listen, there are fields that are just white unto harvest. I, I love to hear about missionaries who go to a country where people are starving for truth but yet no one to give the truth, and they'll open a box of Bibles, and people just flood it, flock in and just take the Bibles, and 
go walking away. And uh, my brother-in-law uh, talks about in Fiji getting to go preach the gospel in the public school. And they'll have hundreds of kids sitting in front of them. I don't see the Nastasias tonight. Every time Bob and Sally go over to Thailand, Bob and Sally will go into a school, public or private, I'm not sure, and they'll have hundreds and thousands of people who are sitting there just ready to hear the Gospel, young, open minds, and it's a harvest that's white. And uh, I've seen pictures where Bob and uh, Sally have gone into a woman's prison, and you have hundreds of these Thai girls sitting in their jumpsuits, their, their prison outfits, uh, and they're sitting in perfect order with perfect posture and they're standing there and they're giving them the gospel. There's places all over the world where their folks are the, the harvest is white and ready to be to be yielded and received. I, I know that sometimes I'll go out soul winning and I'll feel like I'm just talking to hardened hearts. I, there's people who just don't want it. Me and my brother-in-law Aaron over here went out soul winning a couple of weeks ago and we met three folks from Nicaragua sitting on their front porch and my brother-in-law here went very eloquently, went through the gospel with them very, very carefully carefully, methodically laid out the gospel, had their attention the whole time, and he got down to the end and he said, are you ready to receive? And you know what they said? No. No. We don't want that. We're not ready. And oh man, that hurt my heart. Oh, how that hurt my heart. And you know what? Sometimes you meet people and they're not quite ready. But you know what we did? We planted seeds and we watered. We planted seeds and we watered. And I believe someday someone's going to come around and see them receive Christ as their Savior. And when we get to heaven, He that planted, He that watered, He that gathered the increase, boy, they're all going to rejoice together in heaven. We need a harvest of laborers. The parallels Christ used. Number four, and lastly, notice the profession of the Samaritan, the, the profession the Samaritan made. That word profession means the declaration of belief in or acceptance of a religion or faith. So let's see the profession that she made. Letter A, her report to the lost. Look at verse number 39. John 4, look at verse 39 there. It says, And many of the Samaritans of that city believed on him for the saying of the woman which testified, He told me all that ever I did. Now, to use a parallel here, uh, how do you get the human race to cease to exist? You just got to get people to quit having babies. You know? And um, uh, I'm not going to chase this rabbit too far down a hole, but we got a, we got a problem in our Western culture where people just aren't really having babies anymore. And by 2050, 2060, this world, if Jesus, ter- if Jesus tarries, is going to look very, very different. Western culture is going to take a back seat to other cultures around the world. Because people just aren't having babies anymore. We've got birth control being taken all over the place. And the, the act of uh, reproduction has uh, become more something that's just fun for people instead of something that's meant to... You know, it used to be families that have 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11 children. And now people are content with either one child or two children or no children. And, and listen, I'm not picking on people that, that, that have a smaller family. I'm just saying this is a larger cultural problem. And you know what? Uh, in order for families to grow and grow and grow, you need to have lots of babies, and then you need those lots of babies to have lots of babies, and then you need those lots of babies to have lots of babies. And uh, I like to see you know, a family reunion. There was a, a, a church in uh, uh, Hagerstown, Maryland, where I came from, and uh, the grandmother 
had a hard time even remembering all the grandkids and great-grandkids' names. There was like, uh, it was, it, the, their last name was Pot, I believe, H-O-T-T, and there's a lot of jokes that we made there. We'll leave those alone. Amen. Uh, but um, uh, there, I think there was something like 150 grandchildren and great-grandchildren in this family. And they had had a farm, farm family, and, and I, mean, I mean, 10, 11, 12 kids, 10, 11, 12 kids, 10, 11, 12, I just, it just kept fanning out. And, and you know what? You, you have babies, and then you need your babies to grow up and do what? And have more babies. This is how you, 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 you go, this is how you obey the first command given to Adam and Eve, right? Your fruit will multiply and replenish the earth. And we don't have a space problem in America, right? Even in the world, right? How many of you ever flown in a plane and seen all of the open space out there, okay? We got plenty of room. The world, earth is not overpopulated, regardless of what they may tell us. And uh, the command is to be, be fruitful, multiply, and replenish the earth. Now, how's this metaphor applied to what I'm talking about tonight? You had someone tell you the gospel. Someone engaged you in your sinful state with the gospel. You know what they did? They convinced you that you were a sinner. They showed you you were on your way to hell. They showed you Jesus died in your place. And they led you to put your faith and trust in Christ alone to save you. Now, how do you get Christianity within a culture to die off and go away? Then the only way to do that is if people who've been saved will stop going out and help other people get saved. We have got to engage. You know what happened to this woman at the well? She's sitting there with Jesus, and Jesus is revealing Himself to be the Messiah to earth. And by the way, from what I can find in Scripture, and if you're a Bible theologian and you know better than me, you can come show me later, but from what I can find in Scripture, this is the first individual that Jesus revealed Himself to outside of His disciples. This is the first time Jesus revealed Himself to an individual that He was the Messiah. To a Samaritan woman. To an outcast of people who were outcasts. This is who Jesus revealed Himself to. That's fascinating to me. This woman, she gets saved. And you know what she does? Jesus engaged her. She immediately sets her water pot down. And she goes running into town. And she says, Hey! Hey! Come meet a man who told me all of this that I've ever done. And he loved me anyway. Come on with me. And she got a big crowd of people together. And she brought them out of town. And she said, I want you to meet Jesus. And by the way, uh, we're not going to get to this part of it tonight in the Bible, but uh, the disciples are asking Jesus. And I believe that between Sychar's well and the city there in Samaria, I believe, or the city of Sychar, I believe there would have been harvest fields. And as the people come streaming out of the city toward Jesus, He says, lift up your eyes and look upon the field. They're white on the harvest. The people will come walking through the fields to Jesus. And how did they know? They knew because a sinner who had been engaged by Jesus went and engaged other people with the Gospel. You know what you have an opportunity to do this Easter Sunday? You have an opportunity to leave this church tonight and go to your places of work and go to your neighborhoods and go to the grocery store and go to Walmart and go to Target and go to the shopping malls and take with you a handful of Easter invitations and say, come meet a man who knew everything I did and he loved me anyway. And bring those people on into church. And let Pastor Lejeune open the Bible. And let the choir uh, sing about the cross. And let the drama tell people about Jesus. And let's watch God reap a huge harvest. It's only going to happen if we're willing to engage sinners. Her report to the lost. The one who had been engaged by Jesus that then turned around and engaged other people on behalf of Jesus. I just want to ask you straightforward tonight, 
Are you actively engaging the lost with Jesus Christ? Letter B, the repentance of the Samaritans. Look with me at verse 40. So when the Samaritans were coming to him, they besought him that he would tarry with them. And he abode there two days. And many more believed because of his own word. And said unto the woman, Now we believe, not because of thy saying, for we have heard him ourselves, and know that this is indeed the Christ, the Savior of the world. Hey, we heard your report, but upon further investigation, we know that this is the Messiah. All you really have to say to people is, this is what Jesus did for me, but if that's not enough for you, let's come on and I'm going to introduce you to Christ yourself and He can save your soul. Jesus is still in the soul-saving business. But do we really believe that? I finish tonight with this. There are those who are full-blown atheists. They go around and say, I don't believe in God, I don't believe in God, I don't believe in God, I don't believe in God. Did you know there are a lot of people who go to church like this one who are what I'll call practical atheists? They don't say they don't believe in God, but they're practical atheists. What is a practical atheist? A practical atheist is someone who claims with their mouth to believe in God, but in their heart they worship humanism. I will figure it out myself. I have my own wits and experiences and intellect to carry me through. I don't need to pray. Hey, here's one way to know if you're a practical atheist. You never, ever pray about anything. You know, people go to church, and outside of the formalities of praying a service, they don't pray. In fact, when prayer, public prayer is being done, they might close their eyes and stand there, but they're not praying. They go home and they might even go through a little prayer before they eat their food, but they're not even thinking about the words they say. And wife throws them a problem, they don't even think to pray. You know what that is? Practical atheism. If you actually believed that God was all-powerful, you'd call out on Him more and more and more. I wonder how many practical atheists are in the room right now. Oh, I know that. That stings a little bit. Well, you know, there have been seasons in my life where I've been a practical atheist. How about Calvinism? Look, we're not a Calvinistic church here at all. You say, Pastor, there are five points to the Calvinistic doctrine. How many do you hold to? The answer is zero. Zero. All right? And I know we got people in our church who maybe hold to some, if not all, points of Calvinism. I'd be happy to sit and go through that with you on why I don't hold to any. You know what Calvinism basically says? Calvinism says that God has already chosen people to be saved, and before they die, they're going to get saved. They don't have a choice. They call that irresistible grace. Irresistible grace. You cannot resist the grace of God. If God has elected you to be saved, at some point in your life, you're going to get saved. Can I just tell you that your belief dictates your behavior? And your behavior is dictated by your belief. Do you know why I go out soul winning? Because I believe Romans 10 is in the Bible that says they cannot hear without a preacher. I believe that based on the merit of Scripture, that I have to go tell for people to believe. So because that's what I believe, my behavior sends me out soul winning. There are a whole bunch of Christians.
who say, I don't believe in Calvinism, but you don't ever tell anyone about Jesus. You know why? Because you are a practical Calvinist. Because if you really did believe it was up to you to tell the world about Jesus, then you'd be telling everyone and anyone who'd listen to you. Do you engage people with the gospel, or do you just assume, well, those things will shake themselves out on their own? I don't want to peddle fear tonight. That's not my point. I, I, I promise that's not my point. But why don't God this church? I want to get to heaven one day and look my Savior in the eye and know that while I ran my race, I left it all out on, on the track. I left it all out on the field. That I told as many people as I possibly could about how to get to heaven. I planted seeds with those who didn't want to hear. I watered seeds with those who weren't sure. And I reaped the harvest of those who were ready. And I spent a lifetime doing that because I believe that while Jesus chooses for salvation, it's also on us to choose Christ. And both parties choose. And I need to do my part to convince people to believe in Jesus. And I don't want to be a practical Calvinist. I want to be out there telling the world that Jesus saves. I want to engage sinners. Oh, tonight, White Oak Baptist Church, may we be a church congregation with individuals who have a tear in our eye and a compassion in our heart to give the Gospel to all of the sinners out there who are starving and ready for the Savior. Lord Jesus, tonight I pray that You would take this sermon that's been preached with great passion. Would You, Lord, stir our hearts. Lord, if You had not been so compassionate to go out of Your way to go through Samaria, an unorthodox trip through a part of the country where Jews didn't go, to meet a woman who had even been rejected by her own people, to sit there and converse with her and love her. Lord, there's no telling where she'd be today. May we be people who are filled with compassion. May we not see the shallowness of a skin color or a wealth class or a culture. May we look past those things that are shallow and see the eternal souls that live inside of each person. May we value those souls. May we be quick to engage with the Gospel. Lord, may through this series of sermons, with You as our example, may we be charged up about telling the world about salvation. Or may we live our life lifting You up in our lifestyle and through our lips. Challenge us this, this evening, Lord, through Your Word. Help us to go forth tonight and be men and women who are conscious of engaging the world around us. In Jesus' name.